from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm um, Since we just had the 51st anniversary of the moon landing, which I remember when I was 12 years old, I started uh, watching on HBO Max uh, the Tom Hanks uh, series from Earth to the Moon. Yeah, one of my and favorites. So it, yeah, I, I've never seen it before. So I'm really excited. It seems like they go more for the uh, the facts and not... They don't so far. They've not gotten as much into like the character development, but you know that's fine with me. But I just got through the Apollo One um, episode, and so and that's always tough when you get through you know an episode, you know an event where there was a tragedy, and um, but you know it's hard because of the era when this was made. It's hard for me to wrap my head around like the father of the wonder years you know who's on the wonder years that actor is you know like the head of nasa or something and then and then the guy and you've seen the film office space the guy with the little red stapler is like the voice of um you know of the kennedy space center with with yeah and okay that's a really tough one for me because he's a serious actor in that film. Yeah. And uh... <laughs> well, it, that's so like you'll get to it eventually, obviously. But with uh, with Apollo 11 um, for uh, Buzz Aldrin, it's uh, Brian Cranston, of course, from Breaking Bad. Oh, my Bad, gosh. Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. And so that's like one of those. But uh-huh. I mean, back when this was made in 1998, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't huge at that time. He was just making small movies and, you know, random TV and sign. He was on Seinfeld at that <laughs> point. And then once he, you know, it's it's funny to look back now on how many celebrities that were in that that were like kind of still up and coming or slightly big at the time. But now they might be huge and all over the place. And it's a uh, yeah, it's good. I, there's. Yeah, it is. It's very good. And there's some. Then there's somebody, and I'm sitting there thinking, who is he? I think he might have been in Hill Street Blues. He was something, but I I know he was in at least half a dozen TV shows, and and I have no idea who he is. But he was sitting next to the dad from the Wonder Years during the um, congressional hearings on Apollo One, and I thought, okay, I've missed who he is, and but oh, it's it's really bothering me, (laughs) but. Anyway, see, I like the series as what you said with character development and such. Uh, mm-hmm. I I do think that it eventually gets to the point where there's a lot more uh, character development and just just a lot of other interesting takes. So, like for the Apollo Eleven episode, it's actually you know we all know Neil Armstrong landing on the moon and with Buzz Aldrin and that. So like in that episode, it's not a spoiler or anything, but they really focus on the emotions that like Buzz Aldrin was feeling not being the first person to go on the moon. And, and with, oh, that um, would be interesting. Yeah. And with Michael Collins being, you know, he's basic, he's by himself just orbiting, mm-hmm. waiting for them. And for the Apollo 13 episode, you know, we already had Apollo 13 at that time. And, and so they don't need to go over that again. So everything's told from the point of view of what's happening on earth. And so like they find moments like that to kind of twist some of these stories that we're a little bit more familiar with, with and 
build in that that extra character development too at the same time so it's it's a fantastic show i i hope you enjoy it all the way through i i really love it and you can see how like you you can see how tom hanks really honed his skills especially on tv and how that then further led down the road into band of brothers when they made that i'm that's going to be next on my list of things to watch because i have not seen it i started it years ago but you know we're in the middle of raising children and all that kind of stuff so i just didn't have the time so i'm looking forward to seeing that you're gonna love it it's so good i know oh i know yeah i know i've I've not i've heard nothing but good things about it so i mean it's like legendary Mm -hmm. a legendary series Mm -hmm. so anyway so that's what i do and then between all my other things i'm doing so uh, anyway and then um we wanted to uh, again remind folks that we're we're hoping for the rebirth of story time with michael uh, again thanks to listener sean uh what we're going to do is uh to get around the issues that craig talked with us about a few weeks ago the copyright issues we're going to read the uh the originals the grim fairy tales and you know hans christian anderson and all that that disney then transformed into films or shorts and uh, and then what we'll do is we'll i'll read the story and then we'll talk about the story behind how a little about how disney then changed it and adapted it you know what went into it excuse me you know what was their thought process as they went through and made the changes you know made the disney version of these now as we talked about last week you know my concern was you know some of these are a little long and you know we're getting these stories off project gutenberg that sean told us about and because there's no copyright issues they're in public domain but i was concerned that people would get a little bored especially young our young listeners younger listeners of me just sitting there reading because there's not a lot of illustrations in in some of these books that are on project gutenberg that i'm getting the fairy tales from so craig came up with the idea of having you our listeners who are artists submit um your own artwork how you would interpret these stories through your medium and so what we're asking you to do if you would go onto the project gutenberg site take a look at these stories you can download them for free um, either as you know ebooks or download them to you know your mobile device or computer and read them in a traditional way. You know there's PDFs of them there, and then maybe um, do some illustrations for us. We will give you full credit for doing the illustrations, and you know definitely at the beginning of the show, and then your assume your signature will be on it, and then again at the end of the show we'll point people towards your website. If you are a social media site, whether it's an Etsy site, whatever it may be, if you are selling your art. And that way, I think it's a great way that we can still talk about, uh, you know, stories of Walt Disney, an opportunity to hear the original fairy tales and also how um, the process that Walt went through for, you know, a very high level talk about how these were then transformed into the stories that we know through disney so um so craig how can our listeners uh, sort of reach out to us with their uh, telling us what story they'd like to illustrate and sub- how to submit artwork and things like that yeah the uh, best way i believe to get in touch with us will probably be via email and of course you can contact me at craig at wdwinfo.com and michael at Michael at wdwinfo.com and uh, make sure you you try to address it to both of us so that way we're both in the loop on it and you know we can hash out details like you know what size they would need to be and what what we're kind of looking for a little bit more in depth and start a conversation about it all but uh, yeah get, get in touch with us on email and you know, for some reason, if you tried and for some reason we're not seeing it, go ahead and you can always reach out to us on Twitter at Connecting Walt. And, and we'll see it there, mm-hmm. too. So just find a way to get yeah. in touch with us and we can, uh, we can see what we can make happen. Yeah, and the stories that I've selected, these are from um, 
from 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 a, a fairy tale book that's on there um, is um, the Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Cinderella or the Little Glass Slipper, Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red, The Brave Little Tailor. So uh, so any of those that are on the Project Gutenberg site, um, and and I've I've um, chosen Andrew Lang's the Blue Fairy book because I had that in my collection. My godmother gave it to me when I was um, nine years old. And so I'm getting the stories from that particular um, book. So that's on there. Okay, great. So thank you. We're looking forward to seeing what what you come up with and and having you be a part of Connecting with Walt. That would be great. So, all right. You know, Craig, I was looking at what Disney Plus was uh, was you know releasing in August, and you know, because we always talk about what are we looking forward to. You know, there wasn't a lot for me in August. We already talked last week about Howard, the by Don Hahn's uh, you know um, documentary on Howard Ashman. That's dropping on August seventh. So, you know, that's like. We were all looking forward to Hamilton in July. I'm looking forward to Howard in August. That Hidden Kingdoms of China that was supposed to come out in July that I've been searching for, it's coming out on August 7th, too. So I don't know what happened. Maybe they found another Hidden Kingdom. And um, and then, of course, we haven't seen the Muppets series yet. At least I don't know when that was supposed to release. I don't remember. That's continuing. The only other thing that caught my eye was, you know, one day at Disney episode 139, Eric Baker, Imagineering Creative Director. And then there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, National Geographic, uh, you know, material that's dropping. But that's really about it for me. Um, I don't know. Did anything catch your eye that you're really looking forward to? That's a... It's a tough one because it's, uh, you know, I think there is a lot of content that is exciting to people, but definitely uh, not necessarily me. Like, I know the Phineas and Ferb movie that we heard about mm-hmm. at the expo, that's supposed to come out at the end of August, but I don't I don't know anything about Phineas and Ferb, and I, I don't want to say that I I love them. Yeah, I, I've just never made the time to watch them. So I, you know, yeah. I maybe one day, but something, you know, I'm not necessarily excited about it right now when uh, they've been making a big deal about the one and only Ivan that's uh, coming out on August 14th. And so, you know, I'm interested just because I've heard Disney say so much about it that they're, you know, they're they're really trying to I haven't heard build it up. I've heard a thing about it. <laughs> uh, maybe it's I just the vote on that one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just on on random stuff that I listen to and where I where I'm getting my content from. But yeah, I guess it's based on a book. I'm not sure if it was a kid's book, and it's basically about a gorilla and friendship or something. I have genuinely no idea, but I know it's like. I, I don't even know if it's live action or animated, but I know that the cast, like it, Sam Rockwell, Angelina Jolie, oh, Danny DeVito, good. Helen Mirren, um, uh, wow, you know, like big big names, really big names. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's coming. A lot of catalog stuff. Ant Man and the Wasp is getting added for Marvel fans. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's all the Marvel films now that Disney you know, has ownership of. I Yeah, I believe you're getting kind of close to it at the very least. But uh, what else? What else? Um, the, the second Alice in Wonderland film that I never saw, Tim Burton's, yeah. yes. which I'll probably watch because I've never seen it. I, I liked it better. <laughs> you know, and there's, there's, that, there's that Prince of Persia one. Which I've never seen, and we own it, and I've never seen it. It's, even so. if you own it, it's not worth watching it. It is not a good movie. <laughs> uh, and I, I also own it. I think I bought it back in the day just solely for Disney Movie Rewards points, mm-hmm. and that's the only reason why I bought it. But uh, on the Fox side, like Greatest Showman is being added. So. Yes, I'm sure I'll watch that because I enjoyed the film, even though it's totally historically inaccurate. I enjoyed the film. I, well, I will not be watching it. Uh, the <laughs> the Peanuts movie, which is like 
almost like it hurts my head thinking about, but uh, Blue Sky Animation did the animation for Peanuts movie, and Blue Sky is under Fox. So now Peanuts is appearing on Disney, despite oh my having gosh. Been, like yeah, it hurts the head. <laughs> Wow. But Disney doesn't own Peanuts in some roundabout way, right? No, Disney has in no way owns Peanuts. They're (laughs) just going to have the distribution rights to the Peanuts movie and only that. But it's just like, it's so weird to think about it in that way. Because then, you know, to me, that starts this new going down a a wormhole of, you know, parents are going to, if they haven't already shown their kids the Peanuts movie, which they should, it's really adorable and well done. But then, you know, kids are going to be like, well, you know, I've seen that. I've seen the cartoon, Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown and Christmas. Where mm-hmm. where else can we watch this? And, you know, it's besides the Snoopy in space that uh, that Apple TV Plus did. There's there's really not a lot of Snoopy content out there. I think Hulu has mm-hmm. a couple of the movies from the 70s, like Snoopy Come Home. Snoopy Come Home. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's anyway. Sorry, I digress on that. And then. The only other thing I saw that was like a standout was, which I don't know about. I don't know if it's something that aired before and I missed it, but it was Star Wars Galaxy's Edge Adventure Awaits. So I'm wondering if that was like the that special that they had on TV or something before it opened up. Oh, I bet it was. I bet it was. And I, I, I'm not sure. Did I watch it? Because I think I was waiting till I totally experienced Galaxy's Edge before watching it so i think i did i don't i i'll re- see i remember it if it's what the exact one that's going to be shown and i mean I, I know that when when we were in disneyland for the opening at galaxy's edge i remember them setting up for kind of like shots and stuff like that for this so uh hey, the, hey I'll, I'll give it a watch what, what's okay. it gonna hurt all right yeah yeah, I'm sure I'll watch it too. So I'll have a lot of time in the next few weeks. Um, anyway, speaking of Disney Plus, I want to remind you if you have not done so already, uh, we are going to be talking about the making of the Man in Space series. And two of those episodes are on Disney Plus right now uh, Man in Space and um, Mars and Beyond. So uh, check those out. And so that you know you'll be all ready for us, and we're we're going to start uh, you know start easing our way into that um, tonight actually on on this episode. Um, just uh, let folks know, as you know, um, I I announced last week I'm having surgery. Actually, I would have had it by the time this show is released, so I'm hoping uh, I'm doing well. And uh, there's a chance we may be pulling from the archives. Um, we'll see. How that goes, it depends how quickly I recover and can head back to the microphone. Um, you might remember a while back I had that the surgery on my throat to remove a left ventricular cyst. As of today, recording the show, I got back to test results. They were negative. It is a benign tumor. So I'm very relieved about that. So thank you for all your positive thoughts, prayers, and pixie dust um, through all of this. I I truly appreciate it, and I'm hoping the surgery on July 23rd is the last one for a good long while. A while back, we started a series about Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, a term he coined for his nine of his top animators. And with the release of The Man in Space and Mars and Beyond episodes from the Disneyland television series on Disney+, Plus. We wanted to talk about the animator who was the guiding force of this series, Ward Kimball. And joining us to talk about Ward Kimball is Todd James Pierce from the Disney History Institute and author of the book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation. Todd, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Thanks so much for having me here. It's great to be on. Oh, it's, we're, it's a delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much. So, Todd, in the title of your book, you called Ward Kimball the maverick of Disney animation. Why did he deserve this um, moniker in your estimation? Well, compared to what uh, Disney as a, as a studio is trying to do in the 40s and 50s in particular, Ward's very much and self-consciously out of step with where they're trying to, where they're trying to move. When I look at um, Walt Disney and kind of how he moves into animation, um, 
Walt Disney is very interested in making animation more like live action. Um, Walt had come out from Kansas City and he had originally tried to find work in, in live action. And then he goes back to working on the Alice shorts. So he goes back to animation, which is something that's familiar to him. But there, there's something about Walt that's still driven towards this world of making what he produces in animation look more like what comes out of the big, the big studios. In fact, when, when Walt um, leaves Kansas City, he essentially has a choice because animation's not focused in California. Animation's focused in New York. And if he had really wanted to pursue animation as his first choice, he probably would have taken the train in the other direction. But that idea of, mm-hmm. of, of living in the shadow of live action, I think, shapes a lot of his decisions in the 30s and 40s. Um, Walt's very interested in trying to find dimensional depth like they have in um, uh, live action, and that's where the multiplane camera comes from. Walt's very interested in getting um, uh, an artist named uh, Don Graham to come in and do life uh, drawing classes with his animators so their, uh, so their scenes can look more uh, lifelike and uh, um, representative of, of, of a, a genuine life. And so he's trying to move things more so there's um, emotional depth and there's uh, the depth of realism in, in what he's producing. And Ward, after he becomes a full animator and really gets a couple of features behind him, is really not on board with that plan. Um, Ward Kimball is very interested in what's happening with, um, with kind of high art and gallery art, what's happening with uh, surrealism and cubism. And Ward Kimball um, would like to play around with some of these ideas and how they might influence the world of animation. I think that there's like this tremendous what if question that exists out there in the history of animation. That if Walt Disney hadn't been interested in having animation look more like live action, that if he had wanted to move in the other direction, um, away from representational art, what then might the history of animation in America look like but ward's very much in that other group over 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 here that wants to play around with animation as a type of fine art or um high art and and see what other types of images might be interesting to see on screen so in that way he's he's a he's a maverick it's a maverick in other ways but he he doesn't go along with milk calling the others in terms of how films look it's always easy to spot the work that he has in a film mm-hmm. oh yeah you can look at you always know who his characters are because they, I think they reflect his personality <laughs> in many ways. And they look like him a lot of times too. But yeah. So, um, <laughs> That's true. The, they do. Yeah. They have the sparse hair and kind of exaggerated features. Um, and, and Cinderella, um, Lucifer, the cat was one of his characters. And I always think that Lucifer, the cat, amazing animation, beautifully timed, compelling to watch. But I always think that Lucifer the Cat, um, in the scope of that picture, which, except for the mice, mostly appears to be um, a, a picture that has a lot of reference footage, seems very close to representational life. Lucifer the Cat appears to be, you know, like has been flown in on a helicopter and kind of dropped down with soft ropes and just kind of lands from some other production in the middle of Cinderella. And Ward Kimball is not at all interested in trying to get his character design and, and movement to match up with the overall look of what other animators are doing in that film and in other films as well. Yeah, there's a scene when it's funny, talk about Lucifer the Cat, and I think it's so Ward Kimball. The scene where one of the mice is has run underneath the, the, cups. the teacups. The cups mm-hmm. are all set up there. The Cinderella set them up. And Lucifer is looking for you know, the mouse. And when he finds him, there's that Ward Kimball moment where suddenly the cat gets excited and his face, his eyes get big and he shakes his head and his tongue waggles out and he sort of wiggles his claws. And I thought, oh, that's the Ward Kimball touch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good eyes on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what inspired you to write a book about Ward Kimball? Um, there was a kind of a, a couple of things that were um, uh, moving together that, that ultimately produced the book. And so one of them was, um, this was a while ago, maybe 15 years ago, one of the last um, living members of the Firehouse Five Plus Two, George Probert, I had done some interviews with him. And um, in those interviews, 
uh, he said, well, when you're all done with these things, you'll write something um, because some of the things that are out there about the us aren't, aren't right. And so I said, yeah, yeah, I'll put together an essay about the scope of the firehouse uh, five plus two. Um, and then shortly after that, he, he passed on. And so I had these interviews and some other stuff from him and I wanted to do something with that. And then there was this other kind of piston um, clicking away um, in that I, so much of what we kind of collectively as readers or viewers or historians know about the Disney studio, especially the early Disney studio is Walt centric. And so, so much of it is Walter Roy centric. So much of it follows, um, the Disney brothers as they move from shorts to features or towards, um, the outdoor amusements. And so I wanted to go back and tell the story of the development of the Disney studio from someone's perspective, other than Walt, I wanted to go back and, um, uh, create a book, do a lot of research on what would it be like to move through this experience as as one of the artists, as opposed to the person that's in charge of it all. And so I was working on this um, essay that was originally going to be like a couple episodes for my podcast, um, and it just kept getting bigger um, because to explain who the Firehouse Five. Uh, where I had to go back and talk about Ward's interest in antique automobiles and trains. And then I had to get into um, how he was very interested in this frenetic dance and animation. That's really his, his um, strong suit is that he's uh, tremendous at syncopated uh, visual rhythms. And that becomes part of the persona of the Firehouse Five. They're very much acting out the gestures of animation when they're performing on stage. And it just kind of became this kind of sprawling thing. And um, there was one day I used to spend a whole day Sunday at this um, coffee shop in that, in that world before the pandemic. I used to spend, um, get up in the morning around six and go down to the coffee shop and be there from about uh, seven in the morning to eight at night when they closed. And there was one day I was down there that I was just working on stuff when I realized that these two projects would be so much better if I just kind of put them together and started thinking about this as a biography of Ward Kimball that was going to follow Ward's journey through the studio as um, Disney, as the Disney studio invents large parts of American animation. And then in that book, there could also be um, some large sections about the Firehouse Five plus two. But that's how I got started on it. My, my original ambition was to write a book about Milk Call, but after um, <laughs> work, working around in that for a while, I. Um, I just discovered there wasn't enough sources. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't enough material. And in working around the Firehouse Five uh, material, I found that there was a tremendous amount of material on Ward Kimball, and that was probably a much better path to go down. Well, it, 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 there's so much material. Well, he he was almost larger than life in a lot of ways in his personality, and so much of it seemed. Um, crafted and intentional in a lot of ways what do you mean by intentional in that i, I don't know it seemed like especially in, i don't know in the latter years it seemed like he really looked for ways to be i don't know what is flamboyant a good word you know with oh, the yes, gorilla yes. hands and the big <laughs> glasses and you know things like that there was a while in the 70s where he used to wear purple robes to work um yes um, yeah, so, but this seems very much to me, um, you know, kind of the extensions of, of art school personas. Um, this seems in a particular, um, you know, kind of segment of, of the art world. This, this doesn't seem that unusual to me either, that an artist wants to make a statement visually in terms of how he looks and in terms of that visual appearance then represents personality, which is uh, Ward is not very good with narrative. That's his big weak, um, weak area in terms of the development of films. Ward is amazing in terms of visual development. And so he applies that to himself as well. And that just seems like a natural extension in terms of how a person like that would think about appearance. Now, in the first sentence of your book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation, you stated the three passions of Ward Kimball. It was art, 
antique vehicles and music. And he could have, it seemed like from reading your book, he could have gone in any of these paths in his life. And he would have been happy. It would have been fulfilling. But what made him decide on art as his main path in life? There was a, there was a way to make money from it. There was a, a tried and true path. Uh, Ward, Ward um, comes of age. He um, goes to art school. He graduates high school during the Great Depression. And his father is a salesman, and he's not terribly successful. Um, Ward later on is, in his life um, helps support his, his parents. Um, but I think kind of those, those two things, seeing what happens when you're in a position where you're not able to really support yourself and your family, and then having that compounded with um, the, you know, the example around you of the Great Depression, I think pushed Ward towards this much more um, conservative career. His family would wildly disagree with me on that. Um, his family wanted him to go to um, a, a traditional college um, and get a degree in pretty much anything that would lead more directly to a job than art. He has a one-year scholarship to go to art school in Santa Barbara. He spends his last two years in high school at Santa Barbara High School, but he doesn't have a scholarship beyond that. But he has a relative that will pay for his whole way through um, uh, what was UCSB, uh, College of Santa Barbara, which was which is now known as UCSB, will pay, pay his way through that for four years. And so, um, you know, it's a risky thing that he wants to be an artist, but it's a far safer thing than in, in terms of then being a musician or really following this hobby. Uh, Ward's interested in history and the history of mechanics or going down those paths. I'm not even really sure how you would make money in terms of the history of trains or cars. You could make money as a musician, but I think that's riskier than being an artist because you could work in commercial fields in the 1930s and do reasonably well for yourself that way, which is um, kind of Ward's fallback plan when he's a teenager. Mm -hmm. So then how did he end up at the Walt Disney Studio, the Hyperion Studios? Um, there's not a lot of places that are hiring artists in uh, the early 1930s. And Ward doesn't want to become an animator. Um, he's in a cohort at, a, at, at the art school that's ridiculing these films. Um, uh, they think that this is a type of selling out. And so if you're an artist in art school in a non-commercial track, what's valued is your own independent vision. You go out there and you make something new. You go out there and you express yourself um, through some sort of uh, visual representation. When you go to an animation studio, it's a collaborative part, pro uh, uh, product. You all work on something together and it is not your vision for um, um, how that film should work. It, that's done by the story people, then it goes through layout and then it comes down through um, uh, the animators. And so Ward understands that he is using the skills that he has to make a living, but I don't think he has a whole lot of other really good options at that point. The family is um, on, on such hard times that when Ward goes down to apply to the Disney studio, his, his mom gives him a ride down there. They, they only have enough money to buy gas to go the one time. And so he has to explain to the receptionist that he's there to drop off his art portfolio, but he can't come back at another time for an interview. It all needs to be done right then. And then his fam <laughs> family um, gets him to move in with a friend they know through uh, church relations uh, not far from the studio. So And so did they make a decision that day? They make a decision that day. He moves in over the weekend, um, and then he's taking one of the red cars, the old trolley lines, into the studio the next week. He believes he, he's, he is so not intending to be an animator that he doesn't even understand what his job is going to be. Uh, Ward Kimball wants to be a painter and an illustrator, and specifically what he wants to do is he wants to go to New York, and he wants to be an illustrator for magazines, which is where you could make a good deal of money, and you could probably have enough free time then to work on your own art as well. And you'd be around the, the galleries and art schools in New York. And that, that's, his, that's his first ambition. Um, being at the Disney Studios is just a way to support himself until he has enough money to launch himself on his real, real career um, on the other side of the country. But 
Ward thinks that he's going into the Disney studio the following week to be a background painter. And it's only when he arrives um, is he told then that, oh no, um, you haven't been hired to paint backgrounds. You need to put away those brushes that you brought with you. <laughs> you are going to be an in-betweener and we're going to train you how to do that. And what you're going to do is you're not going to create backgrounds. You're not gonna create scenes. You're not gonna create characters. You're going to take scenes that other animators have started. And so let's say that there are, let's say we're animating on, on you know, we aren't animating every, every frame. So let's say that we're animating on two. So there's 12 drawings per second. Um, and let's say the scene is three seconds long. And so maybe the animator has, the lead animator has done the first drawing, the second drawing, the sixth drawing, the 12th drawing, the 20th drawing, and the 36th drawing. Um, assistant might have come in to kind of link up some of those movements a little bit more than what's left goes to the in-betweeners who have to create the drawings that go in between what has already been produced to finish off the scene in somebody else's style, with somebody else's line weight, um, with someone else's presentation. And that's the job that he gets when he goes there. So he's, he's very far from where it is that he wants to be when he arrives at the in the bullpen at the Disney studio in Hyperion. He must have found that job excruciating, given his personality and his dreams. I think that's true. Um, he's also, there's a person named George Drake um, <laughs> that um, has worked in construction, but is um, uh, a relative of a person that's a manager at Disney. So he's been given a job to oversee the in-betweeners as they're hired. And so George Drake wants to fancy himself as a type of instructor, even though pretty much everybody in the bullpen at that time would have had drawing skills that would have far exceeded George Drake's. And so Ward Kimball used to mercilessly ridicule George Drake. Um, uh, he would um, He would launch into the Volga boatman song as though they were all galley slaves down in the bullpen and he would get everyone else to chant he oh let's go and um he would in the scenes um so they in the training program he would make characters that intentionally looked like george drake and made fun of george drake and these were tremendously popular he would pass around gag drawings that featured george drake and, it, and in many ways it's a miracle that that ward wasn't fired during this period um yeah 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 because he was in george drake was in charge he was in charge of the studio's recruitment and training program and i guess that the in-betweeners were forced to take was it a weekly class or something with George Drake? And yet every single one of them was better than George. Yeah, that's and true. <laughs> he would critique their uh, their drawing skills. He would you critique told, them? Yeah. You told a, a hilarious story where, uh, I don't know, they, they all were, George Drake had given them a task of drawing or animating a scene. And then, um, and then Ward slipped in a scene at the end that really ticked off George. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so they would bring in live action footage. Um, and so they brought in a live action feature at the time that had a fire brigade. And this is the about the time that they're doing um, the short with Mickey's fire brigade. And so they're using this live action uh, feature as reference footage for what it is that they're gonna make caricatures out of. And so they each had the assignment of uh, having um, a character run towards a fire with a bucket and then move the bucket as though they're uh, throwing water at the, at the fire. And so uh, Kimball makes two versions of, of the scene. He makes one that's straightforward. That's exactly what George Drake wants. That's uh, timed out and has the motions and is anatomically correct of the character that they're working with. And um, then he makes another one in his own time of a character that looks like George Drake, comes in, throws the bucket, nothing comes out of it. George Drake is empty. And then he just kind of wiggles his ears. George Drake was known for having large ears and he wanders then off, off, off screen. At this point, he'd already passed out a number of drawings that were um, not very flattering of George Drake. And uh, Drake is not 
um, well liked by the animators over in the main part of the building either. And so the animators kind of like these drawings that that Kimball's doing. And for the for the critiques, um, Drake would have them in a screening room, and he'd also he'd often bring in a few of the animators. Um, so there were the Hamlets, you know, the people were there um, to see this. And what Kimball did is the person cutting together the reel, they would put all of the test footage together and then um, they would screen it all at once and talk about it at the end. And um, Kimball asked that if his other scene, the one that featured the caricature of George Drake could be cut in at the end of it. So it would be the thing that closed the screening. And um, there are animators that just remember people falling on the ground and laughing and George Drake, who's at the front of the room, um, has to show that he can take a joke in this moment. So he has to kind of, you know, chuckle a little bit after that, though I think he was extremely irritated. He, he um, wrote Kimball a letter that, um, uh, that expressed a great deal of disappointment with Kimball in terms of a person, in terms of his ambition, in terms of his ability to try to fit into a, a type of corporate mentality. Um, but this is, this is both the thing that sets Kimball apart as this beloved uh, problem causer at the studio and the thing that saves him because the older animators that are there and see this also recognize how well done this animation is, even though it's, um, even though it's done kind of at the um, uh, expense of unity. And people like Ham Lusk, who's an older animator um, who oversees his own scenes, uh, starts to take an interest in Kimball and, in a sense, protects him from being fired by uh, George Drake and Ben Sharpstein. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, I, just, I just was laughing when I read that in your book. I just, as I tried to imagine it in my head, <laughs> that scene but but um you mentioned that the animators saw ward's talent because it seemed like he moved up pretty quickly in the ranks from you know to an assistant animator to a full-blown animator in just a few years yeah i think it's a little over two years it's not long so, so in part he's very gifted um and he's he has a musical background, so he understands how music works better than some of the other people at the studio do. And so if you think of what's happening at Disney in the mid in the mid 30s, there's the Mickeys, which he doesn't really work on that much. He works more on the Silly Symphonies, which are all music based. And so he's very good at that. But he's also uh, given a promotion to a very he gets a very small room next to the soundstage, you know, it seems like it's something that might've been a closet at one time. So it's not a, an elaborate room that he gets, but he becomes a full animator. I believe when he's 22, he's still really young. Um, but at this point, the Disney studio is consciously trying to expand because it wants to move towards that feature. And to do that, it's going to need to have more people that can manage the timing of scenes by themselves and they need to have experience doing this before they started on the feature and so part of it is i think that he is a very uh, gifted person especially with musical movement but part of it is that this is also the time when disney needs to expand out the studio and to find ways to make more people that can oversee the scenes and then move others into assistant roles as well so these two things kind of move together and Ward's the beneficiary of those those two rivers winding together at that moment. Now, now throughout your book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, you related stories of Ward's interaction with Walt Disney. And for Ward, this was a it seemed like a very complex relationship. You know, I mean, Ward seemed to really want Walt's um, approval and recognition and friendship. And um, when did Walt first take notice of Ward? Um, I, I to, to imagine what the Hyperion studio would have been like, um, it would have been a very small organization with a couple hundred people when Ward arrives. Uh, uh, Walt knows who Ward is. When he gets there, he um, asks George Drake how he's doing that, that first week, um, which is the only reason that uh, Ward Kimball gets paid. He doesn't go in as an unpaid two-week uh, trainee. He gets paid because Ward has looked at some of his work, sees that there's narrative elements in the paintings that he's doing, and there's some caricature, and feels like he'd be a good fit, and 
has been trained in part at things that will help him here at the studio. So Walt knows who he is. I think Walt knows who everyone at the studio is when, when they're in Hyperion. Um, but in terms of when does this, when does this friendship really start to move together? Well, probably in the um, early uh, 1940s, late 1930s, when Ward starts to collect the trains, when Ward starts to distinguish himself as someone that has some very eccentric interests outside the studios. And those interests overlap with, with Walt Disney. I think that's when Walt starts to take an interest in him as, as a person. Um, Walt always strikes me as a person that would, is, is, is not the type of person that you'd sit down and have a very long conversation about your family or kind of how you are feeling about work at the moment. That Walt always strikes me as the type of friend that you would have, that that friendship would go um, best when you were doing something that you both enjoyed. That, that's a friendship that needs to kind of be arranged around some sort of um, shared experience. And so once Walt and Ward have that shared experience, I think that they, they do find a type of closeness for Ward, who's um, more exuberant and more flamboyant and more outgoing. I don't think he needs that shared experience to make that connection. But I think Walt does need to have that shared experience to make that connection with Ward. Okay, and it, it, was that something Ward understood? That <sighs> that's what Walt needed? I, I don't think it's calculating or anything like that. Um, I, I don't know what... Um, at, at a certain point, Ward seems very content um, kind of having his own domain at the studio. And Ward is one of the few people at the studio that's able to have what essentially is his own production area at the studio in the 1950s and, and 1960s. He's given a great deal of freedom in part because of his tremendous talent. The, the other eight of the nine old men do not have this. And so um, if we were to think about the Disney studio in kind of contemporary terms, um, Ward Kimball is running like the touchstone unit or something like that. He's producing films that are very different than what the rest of the studio is producing. Um, he's getting uh, director's credits. He's getting production credits. He's eligible at a certain point for Academy Awards. And that is something that's beyond all the other artists at the studio. And so Ward is able to stamp his film with his kind of visual ideas. And so this is that, you know, uh, urge from art school that really, I think, drives Ward his whole life. Um, Ward wants to create things that he's in control of, and he's one of the few people at the Disney studio, other than Walt, that that have that. And so as their friendship or relationship develops, there's, there's a couple of things that happen. I think it's very hard for us today in, you know, uh, 2020 to look back in the 1940s and 1950s and to understand that at a certain point, most people probably wouldn't have recognized Walt Disney on the street. And at a certain point, um, Walt Disney really wasn't a celebrity. Walt Disney was a person that arranged things from a managerial standpoint behind the camera. In the 1950s, when Walt Disney's on TV, Walt Disney becomes a celebrity. And after that, I think in the minds of many people, he remains a celebrity to this day. And so Walt isn't that unapproachable figure that perhaps many of us think of him as, you know, at a, at a certain point, Walt liked to go riding horses. Walt liked to wrestle um, with uh, Olympic athletes. You know, Walt liked to go down and have a couple of scotches and, and, and hang out um, at a restaurant. But there's a very personable aspect to, to Walt. Um, and that's the Walt that, that Ward would have known. And so in the 1950s, when Walt does become celebrity, that really drives a wedge between Walt and the other people at his studio, because Walt is no longer uh, one of the boys at the studio. Walt has become something else. Walt is much more like um, talent um, than he is a person working behind, behind the scenes. And in Ward's life, the friendship with Walt changes over time and uh, Ward in some ways becomes competitive with Walt and Ward wants to 
occupy a space that is like Walt. He wants to arrange films that present an image or present stories or present um, aspects of the world that interest him. And so that competitive aspect that Ward really tries to manage for years, trying to get away with as exactly as much as he thinks he can get away with. He's able to do that for seven or eight years, then it falls apart for reasons that he's not entirely in control of. But I'd say that's kind of the arc of their relationship. Well, we're going to wrap up our conversation with Todd James Pierce for now. But we're going to continue our conversation with him next week. If you enjoyed these stories that he shared with us, boy, there's a lot more coming uh, about Ward Kimball and about Walt Disney. And um, so I think you're really going to enjoy them. And about uh, some of the projects Ward worked on that were fascinating. But right now, we're going to continue to take our look back in Disney history by um, taking a look at what's going on this week. Okay, Craig. Well, here we are. We are already at the end of July, which is mind-boggling. I know, right? I heard uh, on a local radio show, I think it was this past Monday, they started reading about news events that happened in this year, just giving like the, you know, like the, the, the headline or whatever it is. And then they said, now, and this went on for a couple minutes, and then they said, and that was January. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, all of that happened in just one month in this year. And, and the, I guess that's why the year has gone by so quickly. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, um, and, and everything that they said sounded like it, it, I thought, oh no, that must have happened two years ago. <laughs> no, it was just a few months back. Oh, well. well, we're going years back now. Okay, so for July 26th, Walt Disney attended the world premiere for this film in London, England on July 26th, 1951. It will be released in the United States two days later. What is the title of this film? Hmm. I'm, okay, 51. 51. That was... I have two thoughts. I'm, I can't, I'm terrible with my years on it. I'm, I, I, I believe it's, it is going to be animated. I just can't think if it's Alice or Peter Pan. And I'm kind of leaning towards Peter Pan. Okay. Well, and it was out. You were right with Alice. It's Alice in Wonderland. Based on Lewis Carroll's books, Alice's Adventure in Wonderland, and Through the Looking Glass, it's the 13th animated feature in the Disney Animated Features canon. The film will be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture. Attending the premiere with Walt Disney is Catherine Beaumont, dressed as Alice. Okay, July 27th. A Dixieland jazz band is recorded live at the Golden Horseshoe in Disneyland on July 27th, 1962. Their performance the following day will also be recorded and eventually be released on Good Time Jazz Records. What is the name of the band? I'm going to have to guess that it's uh, Firehouse 5 plus 2, considering the, the topic that we just had for this show. That is correct. The Firehouse 5 Plus 2, led, of course, by the lead jazz trombonist, Ward Kimball, who we learned a lot about today. And this was a spare time Dixieland group made up of writers, animators, producers, and directors at the Walt Disney Studios. We'll we'll learn more about the Firehouse 5 Plus 2, you know, as we continue our discussion with Todd James Pierce. Okay, um, July 28th, Disney's first cruise ship, The Magic, is christened on July 28th, 1998. Who chris- christened the ship? I, I don't have an answer for that. I have no okay. idea. It was Roy E. Disney's wife, if that helps. Uh, Mrs. Disney. <laughs> Mrs. Roy E. Disney, you're yeah. correct. Uh, <laughs> otherwise known as Patricia Disney. Gotcha. Um 
Patty Disney christens the ship by remote control, flicking a switch that sends a three-foot-tall bottle of champagne crashing into the ship's hull. The magic then sets sail with a star-studded manifest that includes Star Wars director George Lucas, San Antonio Spurs center David Robinson, and country singer Travis Tritt on a two-day trip to Disney's private island in the Bahamas. The ship's last test run, it will embark on its official maiden voyage two days later. I always wonder if there's really champagne in those bottles they use to christen the ship. Seems like a terrible waste. It, it seems like a terrible waste for sure, but at the same time, it seems like one of those, like, well, if you don't actually use champagne, if you use, like, Osti Spumanti, it's bad luck. Yeah, you'd think so, ginger ale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. July 29th. The first Laughogram cartoon is released, a silent black and white short. It is written, produced, and directed by Walt Disney and animated by Rudolph Ising. It is considered Walt's first full-length short cartoon, as prior to this, he has only produced minute-long cartoons. What is the title of Walt's first full-length cartoon short? I know this. But sticking them, it's uh. there's a little girl in it. Um, Little Red Riding Hood. That's correct, Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> I just used the last bit of energy my brain has tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so a few more questions to go. Okay. <laughs> okay, July 30th. What attraction officially opened to all guests on July 30th, 1999, as part of the largest property-wide expansion in Walt Disney World history to this date? What park was it in? Well, that'll give it away. But it was <laughs> Disney, M Disney MGM Studios. 99. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of does, but I, I think. Is it a uh, roller coaster? Rock and roller coaster? Yeah, Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith. Yeah, the indoor steel coaster features a high speed launch of 0 to 60 miles per hour in 2.8 seconds, three inversions, rock concert lighting, and a specially created Aerosmith soundtrack blasting from 120 onboard speakers in each coaster train oh dear lord all firsts for a walt disney world attraction and this description is why i've only ridden it once I, just so i could experience it <laughs> in the past two weeks i have only ridden it once <laughs> well, in my whole life i've only ridden it once <laughs> and i don't think i'll ever get me on it again Unless they completely retheme it or something, then maybe I'll do that. There's always that rumor hanging out there. I, I mean, we we came up with the best idea for a retheme, and if they don't use it, then I don't think they will ever retheme. What was run. our idea? My uh, the idea that what? I kind of What's the idea. So basically, a a listener gave us the idea on one of the Dis Unplugged episodes, saying just with like the the bare premise that goofy movie should replace it but then rhino and i were oh okay we, like fleshed every single aspect of it out like every part of the story out and like you know if if disney actually did take pitches from people outside the company is i think we could sell them on the idea with how much I, we went in depth and that has become such a cult film it and it's a property they own I th I think I think you'd have a hit on your hands. You know what's really scary not to derail us from this, but I've been catching up on the Disney Insider podcast that mm -hmm. D23 hosts with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who's been on our uh -huh. show before. And they were they did an interview way back before all of this happened with uh, the the one of the people in charge of Magic Happens. I forget his name and I I sincerely apologize for that but basically you know he kind of also went over the other jobs that he had been on with disney before magic happens and one of the jobs he did was he designed the 
the nineties night fireworks for Disneyland after dark. And with that show, it ended with eye to eye from a goofy movie. And he was Mm -hmm. talking about how he got all this pushback from everyone involved saying like, no, it's nineties night. It needs to end with ducktails. Like that's, that's the most popular thing in the world. And so then he was telling the story about how they, he eventually got his way with it and they listened to him and standing there in the crowd and hearing everyone just erupt as soon as eye to eye came on. It was, he was saying like, it was one of the best Disney moments he's ever had. And also like that feeling of knowing like, yes, I I was right. And so I think Disney doesn't understand the popularity of a goofy movie. I, I don't think they do either. So I, when I watched it for the first time, not long ago, I really enjoyed it. That was very well done. Yeah. So, Okay, July 31st, Okay, a Fantasyland attraction based on a film opened at Disneyland on July 31st, 1955. It was supposed to open with the rest of the park on July 17th, but it wasn't operating properly. What is the name of this attraction? I believe, because I had to do a little research on this uh, just recently, but I believe that was uh, Casey Jr., it was the Casey Jr. Circus Train, based on the train of the same name from the 1941 film Dumbo, and it debuted at Disneyland. Yeah, when it, they were testing it, it was going up the hill. It um, didn't quite make it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you, you sent me a kind word, and some of our, uh, our listeners, they might be interested, but I made kind of like a happy birthday Disneyland video uh, last week mm-hmm. for the anniversary of disneyland and i used old archival b-roll footage that disney uh, had provided for for media sites and there was one long shot of casey jr and i was like i didn't think this was open on opening day and so i yeah i just read read about this to to figure out more so i kind of cheated on this one i think they sort of didn't they get it to like run once or something for the cameras? I could and not. then and then it then that was it. <laughs> I, I couldn't even get a distinctive answer on that, so I just assumed that the footage that they had was probably like opening month, give or take, mm-hmm. not necessarily opening day. Yeah. Okay, and finally, August first, Disneyland sponsored Disney Night at the Hollywood Bowl in California. On August 1st, 1958, the show's highlight is a 1,000-foot glide over the audience by an aerialist dressed as Tinkerbell for the very first time. Three years later, she will appear nightly at Disneyland to appear in Tinkerbell's Magic Flight. What is her name? I, I have no idea. Oh. Helen Tiny Klein Klein. Helen Klein, they called her Tiny Klein. And she was like past retirement age when she started this. And she did it for many, many years, basically until she passed away. I had known she was old, but I don't think I ever knew her name. And I will try to keep it in my brain now, but no promises. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The show went on hiatus for a while. And then, then they were bringing her back. And um, and then she she passed away of stomach cancer during the hiatus. So it's a sad story. But I think she oh gosh she did it for decades, which is amazing. So and a lot of these things actually uh, quite a few of these things we talked about in this week in Disney history we talked about in the sixty years of Disneyland. So anyway, you did very well this week. Not too bad. Right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed part one of our talk with uh, with Todd James Pierce, the author of The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation. Uh, there's just so many great stories that, you know, he wrote in his book. Um, you know, he shared some of them tonight or today. And then, you know, what we're going to have we're going to continue our conversation next week but uh, i learned a lot about ward kimball he's one of the more fascinating 
of the nine old men, I think. Yeah. No, it's uh, the entire conversation, you know, since we cut this up after afterwards, uh, the entire conversation is absolutely fantastic. And I, I learned a lot that I didn't know before. I haven't had the time to, to dedicate to read uh, the book yet. So um, a, a lot of what I heard was just uh, fascinating stories throughout and, I, I just want to make sure we plug too that you know it at the very end of our conversation with Todd, we go over all the other work that he does and his books, his podcast, and we're going to have links to that in the show notes already starting this week, even though we don't mention it until uh, the very last uh, the very last bit of our conversation with him. But if you want to start mm-hmm. reading up and finding out more, uh, we'll make sure that you you have it open and available for you already. Yeah, yeah, the the um yeah, his podcast is the Disney History Institute that I listen to regularly. And then he also wrote a book about CV Wood, whom we've talked about on the show as being instrumental in um building Disneyland and in that book is titled 3 Years in Wonderland. And also a very good book. And so um so anyway, so so we've given you a lot to read over the next next couple of weeks and listen to besides listening to connecting with all that's all you should be first on your list yeah so anyway so um so hopefully i'll be back with you soon and until next time craig how can our listeners connect with you as always you can find me on the various shows on the disunplugged podcast network and then on social media on facebook twitter and instagram at teleclaster michael what about you you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook at Michael Bowling, Instagram at Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 